Take a network break, settle in with a virtual donut and a nice hot coffee as we sprint through this week's IT and product news. We're going to cover a serious Cisco exploit, new security products from Juniper and Palo Alto Networks, a new routing ASIC from Broadcom, AI infrastructure gear, and more. We are sponsored today by Backbox, the network automation platform for configuration management, device backups, and OS upgrades. They're now adding network vulnerability management. This new capability is purpose-built for network teams to quickly discover and prioritize network OS vulnerabilities and then reliably automate patching and upgrades. You can find out more at backbox.com slash packetpushers. And then stay tuned after the news. We have a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation. We're talking custom silicon with sponsor Nokia. Nokia recently launched its new FPCX silicon for Nokia routers. We're going to talk about uh, the features and capabilities in the new silicon and the value to service providers and enterprises of custom silicon. All right, let's dive into the news. Uh, there, are, You've probably heard this already, but just to, we want to bring it to your attention. There are active exploits against a Cisco software vulnerability in its iOS XE operating system. The exploit targets a previously unknown vulnerability in the web UI. A successful attack gives the attacker privileged access on the device. Uh, the web UI feature has to be connected to the internet or another untrusted network to be exploitable. And uh, as of our recording on Friday, October 20th, a patch was not available. There's some problems here, Drew. The CVE sort of calls out that this web server that's in iOS XE is vulnerable. Uh, people can easily escalate their privilege front to level 15, which is basically root on a Cisco device. Now, of course, people shouldn't be exposing their web browsers on the internet, but did some scanning around on different articles and somebody has done a preliminary scan and found 10,000 devices. <laughs> to make matters worse, and this was in the CVE, but very, very much downplayed, the attackers are using this exploit to then place an implant inside of the router. So we have at least 10,000 Cisco iOS XE routers on the internet now with an implant written in Lua sitting there, which provides permanent access to the router going forward, even after the web server is disabled and patched. Now, Cisco has admitted the vulnerability here, but here's something that I noted, Drew. No statement from Cisco executives saying that they will change anything or do better. It's just business as usual. <laughs> That's usually how it goes, right? Uh, yeah, even right. With a level yeah. 10 uh, vulnerability, there's usually no statement about. Yeah. I mean, and we know what the statement would be anyway, even if they did. Uh, so yeah. uh, We can't secure our products because you should expect bugs and it's not our fault and, you know, all that sort of thing. I think though I would take, the thing I would point out here is that Cisco's web browser, this issue has been consistently raised across all of Cisco's security products. So the various Pixes and Firepowers have had this problem, various of the lower end switches have had this problem, and now this high-end router, iOS XE is a high and router platform, it's sort of an indication that Cisco's got a real problem in this particular piece of the code and it's systemic. And I've just got to wonder who's writing this code. Is this like where the interns go to cut to learn how to do iOS development or something? But you know, for Cisco to keep having vulnerabilities in this particular piece in this web server, and you know, regardless, sort of a sign that uh, Cisco executives aren't monitoring closely about where the security risks are in the development pipeline, and they're not fixing things, which leaves me questions about you know what Cisco is doing for their customers to protect their customers. And yes, I agree. People shouldn't be putting their web server on the internet. Of no, course, that's and true. Yes, your management interface should not be connected to the internet. Uh, absolutely, but still. <laughs> but it should be right. It should be safe. It should be secure when you're buying a premium brand, to you know because it's a premium brand and it has this sort of issue. So. Yeah. So as I mentioned, a patch is not available, but Cisco is recommending that you disable the HTTP server feature on the iOS XE, and it has also issued some snort rules uh, if you've got an IDS so that you can maybe attempt uh, detect an attempted attack. Uh, so we'll see if a patch gets rolled out, but in the meantime, there are a couple of remediations. And if you have been vulnerable, you know, keep watching for how to get the implant removed from your box because the, it's believed that if you were vulnerable before and you were connected, the box has now got an implant on it, so you're done. 
Right. Yes. And we've got links uh, both from uh, Cisco's Talos Intelligence, which has details, and Cisco's own uh, notification with uh, remediation steps and other things to watch out for. So if you can you click those in the show notes. Uh, sticking with security, Juniper Networks has announced four new hardware firewalls in its SRX line. The new firewalls are all uh, 1RU form factor and performance ratings range from 24 gigabits per second all the way to 1.4 terabits per second. Uh, the firewalls are based on Juniper's custom Trio silicon. Yeah, I think not much for me to say about this. This is pretty much as you would expect it to be. It's a big hardware firewall. They talk about on-box AI detection engines that the company talks about. Mm -hmm. um, Juniper is doing, although they use the words AI predictive threat prevention, to bring operational simplicity and scale to data center security. The thing that continues to amaze me is that people are buying big firewalls and they want performance ratings from up to terabit class. Mm -hmm. So there's that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and I, I did get a briefing on Juniper and I asked a little bit more about this. What do, what do you mean by on-box AI? Uh, they said they have uh, a detection engine that's using AI on the box where they claim they can spot malware variants for which new signatures haven't been developed, meaning you know attackers will make changes to an existing malware uh, to defeat the signature hashes. But Juniper says this AI engine can run inline inspection and identify persistent characteristics of known exploits without having to sandbox it and without a signature. Uh, this doesn't work on zero days, but uh, it does, mm. they say, work on attempts to you know, fuzz existing malware to evade signature checks. Yeah, and this is also a distributed uh, firewall. So it's, it's, it, this looks to be like a multi-box architecture. So you don't have to have a chassis to do this to get this sort of density. It's multiple boxes coming up. Is that right? They made they they they're talking about some kind of new distributed services architecture where you mm. can do some routing uh, in an MX. Uh, the MX will do the control plane, and then the SRX firewalls will do the data plane inspection. But mm. there was not a lot of clarity about how it all ah, comes okay, together. Right. So I think this okay. is something that uh, we'll get more details on as they get their story together. Yeah, this, so there's some sort of distributed services in there, but not necessarily the firewalling. But I guess if the firewall's scaling up to 1.4 terabits per second, what you're really trying to do is unload the low-level packet forwarding perhaps to an MX router. Yes, I think that might be the idea, but uh, there, mm. I, I couldn't get a lot of clarity on that. And it sounds like they're still trying to figure out what they're doing with this. So stay tuned on figuring that out how to talk about it. I'd say they have the technology, but how do you communicate it? Right. Uh, that, that's mm. my thinking, yeah. So if, if, if something else comes out where we, I get more clarity, I feel like I can explain it clearer than I will. But uh, Okay. Yeah. Anyway, link in the show notes if you want to read the blog or the press release on the new firewalls if you're looking to get uh, your hands on some hardware. Uh, speaking of hardware, DriveNets has announced a white box offering uh, for building an AI Ethernet fabric to support AI workloads. Uh, the white box is built around Broadcom's Jericho 3 AI ASIC for your top of rack or leaf switches and the Broadcom Ramon ASIC for spines. The company says it can build out a fabric to support 32,000 GPUs on 800 gig ports and promises lossless Ethernet. All right. So you to do understand this, because this is like way ahead of everybody else. All the other companies are basically tuning up their buffers to try and not drop Ethernet frames and making promises that they're going to have some sort of SDN, you know, whenever the Ethernet AI consortium gets its thing together. Remember Ultra Ethernet? Ultra Ethernet consortium. Uh, yeah, that's. Yeah. yeah. So what DriveNet is saying, our existing architecture already does this. And what they've basically done is the, some customers took their architecture, did it, a test on it for AI and found that it is actually well-suited and high performance, far more performant than most other alternatives for AI networking. And remember that AI networking is unique. 
when you're transferring data between two GPUs, which happens constantly because the GPUs have to all run the same data set. And then once the data is out, they then communicate with each other in the results and then the processing continues. So any delays, any loss in the network is extremely damaging to the AI processing. And so the way that DriveNet works is it uses white box switches with around based around Jericho 3 chipsets, the Broadcom Jericho 3. And up until now, it's been creating these massively large Ethernet fabrics for massively scaled up routing. That is literally thousands of physical ports made out of one IU boxes to build a non-blocking fabric, right? Mm-hmm. And the way that they do that is they use fixed size cells inside the network fabric. That is the when the Ethernet frames comes in, they then chunk it up into consistently sized frames. I don't, I don't not going to go into the exact technology behind that, talk to them about that. And that means that all of the queues and the buffers and all of the flow balancing inside of the network is optimal. You don't have this um, idea inside of the internal ASIC architecture where you have different size frames sitting in the buffers. If everything's the same, then all of a sudden your quas and your virtual output queuing and all that sort of stuff gets dramatically simplified. That is a major difference between drive nets. And they've been using that for their routing fabric. So as the ethernet frames come in, they get turned into these cells. This idea is not new. It's been around for 40 years, chassis switches have been doing this exactly for the same reasons. They chuck everything up into a fixed size cell and then they know exactly what's going to deterministically they can move stuff across the back plane and not lose frames in the back plane or inside of the chassis itself. And so this is not unusual. What's unusual is doing this on a disaggregated network. They say after they've um, that customers have gone out and come back to them and say, this is at least a 10% improvement in AI processing performance. A 10% improvement in AI processing performance today, Drew, is basically the cost of the entire network. So <laughs> keep in mind how much an NVIDIA uh, GPU cluster costs, you yes. know, so if you can get 10% performance improvement, they would say um, that would pay for the internet. Yeah. Right. So this sort of response uh, was enough for them to actually go out and commission an independent testing lab. And that's what the press release is saying. We commissioned an independent testing lab, which of course I'm always dubious about independent testing labs because uh, it's always possible to get an independent testing lab to say exactly what you want them to say. Yes. But here's some data for you to maybe, if you're looking at AI networking, maybe this is a path for you, uh, to add to your list. It's got credible story. There's a good storyline behind here. And they're doing something innovative. They're doing something new that other companies aren't doing. Well, it's my understanding, actually, that it's the uh, that, that cell division capability is actually uh, a feature in the Jericho 3 AI chipset itself. I don't know if it's something that DriveNets is doing. It's it's a feature in the Jericho uh, chipset, yeah. the 3 AI. But yep. as far as I know, they're the only company using it today. Could be. So I think companies like Google have been doing this with their internal architecture. They moved to a cell-oriented approach a while ago. They're Aquila. If you look up, do a search for Google Aquila data center, mm-hmm. you'll find their white paper. And this is a step in that direction, or, or this is a, on a similar train. Yeah. One thing to note, uh, I almost forgot, uh, DriveNets is saying that in the event of a network collapse, so this is what happens when, when you're doing mass data transfers at the same time, and if you get some sort of AI data spike or you get an in-cast condition where everybody's transferring data to a, a small group of ports and they overload, apparently their customers are saying that their that DriveNet's performance is up to 35% better in, uh, than their competitors in this situation. Because of this cell-based architecture, the fabric recovers one, you know, 35% better than competitors. Uh-huh. And so that's been very important because once you overload your AI fabric uh, you, in your network, it's recovering from that overload situation, which is just as important because sometimes you can actually have uh, catastrophic failures where the whole fabric seizes, I've heard. So yeah, interesting. Yeah, there's a link in the show notes. I wrote an article about the the Jericho 3 AI uh, that some of the interesting things are doing. And that article also has a link to a Tech Field Day presentation from uh, 
Broadcom about the stuff they're doing with uh, this AI chipset. Mm -hmm. So if you are interested, it is some pretty unique stuff. I would recommend checking it out uh, just for your Yeah, I would imagine that we'll see Cisco and Juniper and Arista heading down this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, 100%. There's no reason that uh, an Arista couldn't, you know, they're already a, a merchant silicon company anyway, that they wouldn't take mm -hmm. advantage of these features uh, in, in Broadcom. So. And Juniper, I'm just saying, Cisco ACI would have a much harder time, I think. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, lots of links in the show notes. Uh, we'll move on. Palo Alto Networks has announced the Darwin release of Prisma Cloud. This is a platform for the secure development of custom cloud-native applications. And new features include the ability to view the user interface by role, a new way to view your apps by cloud services, infrastructure assets, compute workloads, API endpoints, data, code, and other features. Uh, I think the general idea is that if you're building uh, your own set of uh, cloud-native applications to run in public cloud, you want to do some security checking before you actually push that application out uh, to make sure it's, it's safe and ready to go. And so Palo Alto has a platform to hopefully make that a, a little simpler of a process because secure coding and secure development is tricky. Yes, it is. And I can imagine, Drew, that there's a lot of security teams out there who are focused around, you know, Palo Alto is a major partner for them mm -hmm. in terms of their, you know, monitoring the network and watching what's happening and looking for threats, threat detection, you know, doing inspection, content logging. And they would have approached Palo Alto and said, well, how do we do cloud native application security, right? Mm -hmm. How do we do DevSecOps? And a while back, I think over the last two years, we talked a few times around Palo Alto making acquisitions in the cloud application space. And I suspect that this is the outcome of that. I didn't uh, didn't get a briefing to ask that question, but that's my reading of the situation. And so they call it, uh, the security people apparently call it CNAP, Cloud Native Application Protection Platform. This is the buzzword for all of this. Mm -hmm. And this basically brings together a bunch of different tools, cloud security, posture management, multi-pipeline DevOps, cloud infrastructure, entitlement management, cloud workflow protection, and cloud service network security. So basically all of that off-prem networking and asset you know, configuration management, all that sort of stuff has to be monitored as part of your security. So if you're a security team and Palo Alto is one of your partners, you might want to look at this for your CNAP. Um, and it sort of, I think it's see it as complementary. I think there's there, there could be a good leverage there potentially if you've got a lot of other Palo Alto, you know, you've got that SD-WAN and you're going into the public cloud, you know, you've got services in the public cloud, or maybe you've got Palo Alto firewalls doing a lot of your firewall security or, you know, all that sort of stuff. This seems to be a, an extension of that and might be well suited to customers. Yeah, perhaps. I think one of the issues is that my understanding is that developers get a little cranky when the security goons roll in and start uh, making demands about writing more secure software and securing the, the pipeline and so on. So maybe if there's a platform they can all coalesce around and sort of work together better, maybe yeah. it will make the process a little easier. I don't know, but I think that's the goal. <laughs> yeah, DevSecOps. So it's sort of controlling what, what the developers can get and how much of something and should they be instant, you know, do they have permissions to instantiate workloads and how do you protect that and policy you know, if you instantiate a workload, what are the policies that go with it? What yep. should it be running? All that sort of stuff. So yeah. I think having, you know, those basic things there and being able to say like, oh, look, there's a new instance here. Does it meet my policies? Does it have SSH disabled? You know, and so forth. That's right. the sort of thing I'm thinking of. Yeah. yeah, I think so too. Yeah. But if you get insights, let us know. You can always hit us up, packetpushers.net slash FU, because uh, we love comments, clarification, and follow-up. A quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Backbox. The Backbox network automation platform is introducing its newest feature, Network Vulnerability Manager. As the number of critical vulnerabilities affecting network equipment goes up every year, engineers have to patch and upgrade faster and more frequently. And manual vulnerability management, meaning that Excel spreadsheet or Google Doc that you're trying to keep updated just doesn't cut it anymore. Backbox now combines network automation and network vulnerability management in a single platform. It's purpose-built for network teams to help you discover and prioritize network OS vulnerabilities according to risk and then automatically remove 
remediate them. Backbox supports more than 180 vendors and thousands of devices, including switches, routers, firewalls, load balancers, APs, and more. Find out how you can better automate and protect your network with Backbox. Get all the details at backbox.com slash packet pushers. And I got to say, I don't know if the Backbox marketing people timed it, but that Cisco... Exploit robot. <laughs> at the same time they launched this product, that's that's magic. You can't ask for that. Let's go with magic. Let's say it's not intentional. <laughs> yes, absolutely. No, no evidence to the contrary. No evidence to the contrary. <laughs> please don't sue us. Yes, please don't sue us. <laughs> All right, back to the news. Uh, ASIC maker Broadcom has announced a new uh, QRAM 3D routing chip. It's a member of the Strata X family. The new chip promises 25.6 terabits per second of routing throughput and support for 100 gig to 800 gig Ethernet ports. This is an announcement, Drew. It's a shipping. It's actually available today. It's shipping, okay. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, which is unusual. We don't normally see you know an announcement that says it's just out. Uh, this is a single chip. Uh, this allows you to build a single chip, single box, so one RU type idea uh, router for 800 gig. So that's 32 ports of 800 gig routing in a wow. single ASIC. So you can then start to think about populating those routers with 400 gig optics now while providing a, a, an upgrade to 800 gig in the future. I don't know about you, Drew, but how's your network looking at 400 gig? Is that the thing? <laughs> well, as you say, bandwidth <laughs> solves everything. So Bandwidth solves all problems. So I think this is an example of that. Uh, so this is routing silicon, not switching silicon. So this isn't Tomahawk or June or whatever. This is the routing. So this put pitches uh, Broadcom into the fight with Nokia's FPX, Cisco Silicon One, Juniper Trio, and so forth, which is their high and routing silicons. Um, these chips tend to have specialist features like access to extended memory so you can store high bandwidth memory, um, external TCAM modules so that you can put it on a on a box and wire in external TCAM so you can have millions of routes in there if this is a core router on the, on the BGP sort of thing. Um, and I think it's interesting that Broadcom, it's not, Broadcom up until now hasn't wanted to, to just get into that market. They've sort of left that market alone. My assumption always was that it was not enough shipment volume there for Broadcom to play in it. But I think now we're seeing Broadcom say, no, no, we want all the all the all the things. So maybe they've found some way to make this economically viable to get in and do a design and produce a chipset in that market. So high end yeah, routers, here's Broadcom's coming. Yeah, Broadcom says uh, specifically the chip will accelerate the move to merchant silicon routers, which is definitely a shot across the bow of Nokia, Juniper, and others who build custom silicon for this market space. Uh, we didn't throw this in the the, the news, but uh, Nokia just announced so huge layoffs over ten thousand employees, in part because uh, the the five G market and the the telecom market hasn't performed like they wanted to. And news like this probably mm. doesn't help. Yeah, so I think the just a. Quick commentary on the Nokia layoffs. It is seems to be centered around the service providers. Yeah. Um, it struck me, Drew, that, you know, we, although we talk a lot about layoffs and talk about how companies are being disloyal to employees, the flip side here is they hire them as well. So if you want to take a positive view of that, remember that companies are hiring a lot of people and then and hoping that things will go well. And when they don't, they lay them off. So yeah. the flip side of, of layoffs is that you got hired in the first place. Does that make you feel any better? I don't know. No. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not me, but uh, you know, I appreciate uh, you trying so, to bring a little bright side to it. <laughs> yes. So uh, so the Coomeran chip set from Broadcom talks about 6.5 million FIBs, entries in the FIB. Uh, it's a dedicated on board. You can also scale up to 1 million access control lists. You're talking millions of counters. So we're a big thing these days is to have telemetry and state counters inside of the box so that you can then stream telemetry off. And that has been a feature of the custom silicon from the vendors for some time. I still think the custom silicon has an edge 
they're trying to make a big deal about the fact that this is a five nanometer and uses slightly less power. So we're talking about 30 watts per 800 gig, whereas the other they're taking pot shots at other people's silicon saying 40 to 45 watts per other silicon. Um, I'm not entirely convinced by all of this, but I think, you know, if you are writing code for Broadcom Jericho chipsets or the or the Qumran chipsets for today, and you can just put this in and get the next level up, you'll probably be pretty happy about it. Yeah. All right, link in the show notes if you want more. Uh, we'll move on. The U.S. Federal Communications Commission is taking the first steps toward restoring net neutrality rules that were overturned in 2017 uh, with a 3-2 vote in favor of a proposal to reclassify broadband providers as essential telecommunications providers. Under Title II of the Communications Act, the FCC will now enter a public comment period on the proposal. Uh, that should open soon. Uh, a vote to fully restore net neutrality, which would prevent broadband providers from throttling traffic or providing uh, for-pay fast lanes, is going to come in 2024. So this is the first step in that process yeah i'm not too bothered about the politics behind this this is a u.s issue so if you're in the u.s this kind of affects you if you want some thoughts here they are uh, in general net neutrality is aligned with the values of the internet that is anyone can pay to connect to the internet work and there are no restrictions about who can connect to the internet right mm. yep. that includes spammers <laughs> and malware providers uh, net neutrality means that the network does not particularly discriminate on who gets access and also not only access, but also does not discriminate on what performance they might receive. So what we've seen in the past is when net neutrality isn't in place, megacorps like Facebook, for example, would set up situations where their traffic rides for free, but everybody else has to pay per megabit. And that creates a sort of a form of discrimination based on money. So poor people suffer, rich people don't. I'm a general believer that the internet should be a dead simple network that forwards packets at the highest possible speed, uh, rather than a network infested with complex devices and unreliable software attempting to restrict what you can get access to, or to restrict the speed, or to control, or to throttle, or to account for stuff. And all the networks that I've worked on over the years where that was what I got paid a lot of money to do, they really didn't work very well because those devices blew up all the time. And I would also note that the TCP and the UDP protocols that we rely on simply do not support any of those features well. They're not built into the protocols. They're all done in some external thing. Um, and so I think the challenge here is that having a non-neutral network is the way the network works. And every time we try and lay something on top of it, we create more problems. Um, and so having that social aspect where it's a common good, that's all well and good, true. I know you're keen on that aspect. For me, it's just like I believe that bandwidth is infinite. See the chipset we talked about just a minute ago, you know? <laughs> and that what we should be focusing on is not spending money on extracting maximum profits and making artificial scarcity. It's just like, okay, here's what we do. We just keep clocking the speed of the internet up infin infinitely as fast as possible, and the network will be neutral. And what odds on top of the network may not be neutral. That is, Facebook may be proprietary and closed. Amazon's network is proprietary and closed. Google's network is proprietary and closed. But the open network is is equal share to everybody. And I think that's the better way to be. Yeah, I think uh, net neutrality is less of an issue now because one reason is uh, that a lot of states uh, implemented, some big states, including California, implemented their own net neutrality rules uh, after the federal rules were uh, taken back. Uh, so I think the uh, broadband providers have decided not to try to play around with, um, you know, making more money out of their pipes by putting in these kind of four pay fast lanes. I think the real issue that they're going to fight against is this reclassification because it does give the SEC more potential regulatory power over them in the future that could determine things mm -hmm. like price setting, uh, open access to their networks to competitors, that kind of thing. So I think that's what mm -hmm. they're trying to avoid. Net neutrality is kind of just the first step. Uh, they, they, net neutrality is not really the issue anymore. It's this reclassification yeah. that allows more well, regulation of these these companies that they don't there want. Was, 
as best as I can tell, there was also a lot of abuse where um, companies were saying, oh, our networks don't have to be neutral now, so we don't have to provide upgrades. Right, and and there was a bun, a lot of kerfuffle going on in the background about the government. The, the most telcos have an obligation to provide minimum service levels, mm-hmm. and the net neutrality, um, the the removal of net neutrality allowed them to get out of compliance with minimum speeds. And so, there's right. a lot of other stuff going on in the That's background. That's what I mean. There's more regular more regulations that could come down the pipe if they get reclassified as an, an essential telecommunication service. The what the FCC did uh, back in 2017 was unclassify mm. them and now this is a reclassification uh, that would allow And this more matters to us, Drew, because yes. the <laughs> devices that vendors make uh, match what are the needs. And if non non-neutral networks, this this idea of networks that discriminate against against users becomes conventional, then the router designs have to match that. So we get into deep packet inspection and cross buffers and all that and the cost and the hassle and the complexity. Whereas if you could just say, I just want a router that's as fast as possible, simple, because that's the obligations, then that has an effect on the products that you see out in the market. Mm-hmm. All right, links in the show notes if you want to uh, check that out for yourself. Uh, another chip-related story, Taiwanese chip maker TSMC saw its profit slip in its third fiscal quarter. The company reported revenues of 547 billion new Taiwan dollars, which is about 17.2 billion US, and a net income of 211 billion new Taiwan dollars, or about 7 billion US. Uh, its net income was down 25% year over the year. However, the company still did make a profit and managed to beat investor uh, expectations despite that dip in, in its profitability. Yeah, I think a lot of this is to do with how much money they're spending on build-out. They're spending literal billions on building new plants in offshore. So they're in Japan, they're in America, they're in Europe. Uh, they're also building two nanometer. So they're investing significantly in finding new locations to build out three nanometer and two nanometer plants. And they require literal billions of dollars and three to five years before those plants can come online. And by all reports, it's, you know, there's huge investment, outgoing investments, which is affecting their numbers. TSMC still remains the most successful manufacturer of silicon and will probably keep focusing on it. Intel's not quite the force that it once was. And a lot of the smaller players have all been disrupted with the changes with the relationship between China and the US. So there's a whole bunch of stuff happening here. So we need a healthy TSMC for the time being, because that's who makes most of the chips that's inside of your technology or enterprise technology. Uh, yeah, the company specifically cited weak demand for smart po- smartphones and PCs uh, as a reason for the dip, uh, and also a soft automotive sector. Uh, revenue from high-end chips, which includes NVIDIA GPUs, accounted for 42% of the company's revenue for the quarter. Uh, in their outlook for 2024, they say it's all sunny skies uh, because they anticipate higher demand in the personal computing sector as chip stocks are now getting depleted, and they are uh, anticipating ongoing demand in the AI sector to help drive revenues going forward. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I've not put it down here, but the analysts are all talking about 20 to 30% drops in PC sales right now. So this quarter, <laughs> just can you imagine 20 to 30% drop in your sales of laptops and desktops? And mm-hmm. So apparently enterprises aren't buying any. Uh, so to predict that next year they will, that's good. That's good. Well, you know, okay, fair enough. Fair Question enough. I mean, all, I- but okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, we, we did see a huge spike in demand uh, over the pandemic with folks working from home and getting lots of uh, product refreshes. That's been a couple of years now, so maybe stuff's getting a little older and people are ready for new gear, so we'll see. But of mm-hmm. course, you wouldn't expect uh, the CEO to say anything other than sunny skies uh, looking ahead. So Yeah, of course he is. He spent all that money. He better be getting a return next year. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, our last story before we wrap, but the Chinese government is requiring all routing manufacturers that want to sell equipment in China to support IPv6 by default, uh, That so that it's the default uh, option when you boot up the gear. The requirement goes into place on December 1st, 2023. 
I'd like to know more of the details behind this one, Drew. It was a bit thin. It just said all routers have to support it. They don't talk about, you know, where's the exceptions? Is it like every feature has to be IPv6 ready or is this just like in general you have right. to meet some? Because uh, what we've seen over the years is everybody declaring that they're IPv6 ready and when you start to scratch away at it, you find 50% of the, 50% of the features aren't actually IPv6 ready. Classic one is uh, threat detection. Quite often there's no IPv6 um, for for support for in the threat detection engines of firewall companies, for example. So th- I think this is a step in this direction. I think the main thing that you need to be thinking here is that Trino already has very high IPv6 adoption in large part because APNIC didn't have a large pool of IPv4 addresses to issue. So, you know, if you're China, you need literal, you know, billions of IPv4 addresses. Sure. There just wasn't any. APNIC didn't get a very large allocation in the first place. And by the time China came to the internet, most of those addresses have been allocated away. China now has its own NIC, the CN NIC, as opposed to APNIC. And they just there's just not a lot of IPv4 addresses available for them. So China's been working towards IPv6 for some time. But we've also talked a lot about here on this show over the years about IPv6+, plus, which is various proposals that China has put forward to make IPv6 as a protocol more suitable for centralized control and administration. Hmm. And the Chinese government there has a viewpoint that it should be able to uh, monitor and inspect that traffic. And I could also imagine that the China fire, you know, when we talk about the great China firewall, the great firewall of China. I could imagine that would be simplified if it was IPv6 only. If you didn't have to do IPv4 and IPv6, that might be a lot simpler. So I would imagine that they are pushing uh, hard towards IPv6, and I think it makes sense. Uh, They've already got very high adoption, and going all the way there would be nominally a good thing. And they're in a position for the government to say, do that, and that is how that how the China, you know, the government to society works. And so, sure, I I could absolutely accept this and see there's value in that for them. Yeah. And the rest of the world will stick with that. Well, we'll just be waiting for the opportunity. No, no, there'll be this gradual, (laughs) ongoing, sledgy, you know, continuous investment, you know, like waiting for the replacement, you know, whatever. Whatever. Right. IPv6 avoidance, silent IPv6 avoidance. Yeah. Yeah. I was at a a network user group event last night and IPv6 as a topic came up and the general consensus in the room was I'm sticking with NAT. So (laughs) (laughs) you just want 48 bit addressing. Why would you go to 128 bit? (laughs) Right. 16 bits of TCP, 16 bit supports plus 32 bits of IP. That's 48 bits. Boom. Done. Apparently, NAT solves a lot of headaches. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which I, our, our friends on the IPv6 Buzz podcast, I'm sure will be frustrated to hear, but uh, yeah, that's an ongoing issue. All right, that wraps up the news portion of the show. Stay tuned for our Tech Bytes conversation. Uh, we're going to be talking with Nokia about its FPCX routing silicon uh, that's coming right up. Today in the Tech Bytes podcast, we talk custom silicon with sponsor Nokia. Nokia has recently launched its new FPCX silicon for Nokia routers. We're going to talk about uh, features and capabilities in the new silicon and the value to service providers and enterprises that custom silicon can bring. Our guest is Jeff Jacob. He is VP of Hardware Product Management at Nokia. Uh, Jeff, welcome to the podcast. So you know, this is an era where merchant silicon essentially dominates the market. So why is Nokia going against these headwinds with a custom chip? So we've seen a gap in the market when it comes to where silicon performs best. And uh, something that we've observed over the market, uh, you know, for the last uh, 15 or so years was that there's been a constant exit of vendors from making merchant silicon targeted towards service providers and mission critical uh, network operators. And where we're left with today really is just one vendor when it comes to credible merchant silicon. 
Now, with respect to that, we also saw a few key areas where we could really innovate. So one of the things that we're bringing to market with this new set of silicon called FPCX is that we're going to support something called in-service software update with zero packet loss. Uh, we have a unique architecture in FPCX, something that is not replicated anywhere else in the industry right now. It's a multi-core design where every core can run code independently. Hmm. Now, normally when someone goes and does a system upgrade for a pizza box, they'll put new code on that pizza box, they'll turn it off, and then five to 10 minutes later, everything will come back up, reconverge, and <laughs> uh, everything will carry on. Uh, we're going to change that. What we're doing with FPCX is we can do that upgrade while continuing to pass traffic. So the multi-core design that we have will allow us to drain traffic from half the cores, upgrade the microcode on those cores, uh, bring them back into service, repeat that process on the remaining cores that we have in the system and effectively do a complete hardware level upgrade of the mm. system without dropping a single packet. A couple of things there that I think we want to draw out here. One is the ASICs inside of high-end routers actually have software inside the ASIC or microcode. And part of the upgrade of software involves updating the code inherently inside of the ASIC, right? That's correct. So if you right. have a programmable ASIC, yes, you have that as an option. Right. And so, but up until now, the way that you updated the microcode was you power the device on and then it would boot up, come into a bootloader, load the operating system. And part of the boot cycle of the loading operating system is to, you know, check the microcode. If the microcode's not matching the OS, then it updates and so forth and so on. And so the router has to go down. But what you're actually saying is you can actually update the microcode in the ASIC by saying, because it's multi-core. So this would be, this idea of a multi-core forwarding plane would be equivalent to what Intel CPUs are with multi-threaded and they have like virtual CPUs and multi-core CPUs, that type of approach. So the only difference there being that with Intel, uh, all the cores yeah. run the same code and it's the right. same code by design, right? Again, okay. we have the yep. ability here with our multi-core design where each core can run its own individual set of code mm -hmm. and it does not need to align to the one master copy. So you would do the update, say, in a quiet period, because obviously you're turning off half your cores, you're going to lose some performance. But there's always a quiet period on a service provider network, and but no failure. So that means just to do standard operational stuff, you don't need to have resilient chassis in a place or some resilient boxes. That is exactly right. So there mm -hmm. is actually a significant amount of space, power, and cost savings that does come with mm -hmm. looking at an FPCX-based pizza box. Because again, if you want high reliability, high availability, you would normally have to dual home boxes or put in a control and fabric redundant box. Uh, you don't necessarily need to do that anymore with FPCX. Right. Uh, and the upgrade process itself, yes, you're gonna use, lose a little bit of performance when you do that core upgrade, but we could easily also just stagger the upgrade across every single core, uh -huh. just lose a small fraction of the forwarding okay. over the period of the upgrade process. So what kind of performance specs are we talking about with this new silicon? So FPCX is five tera full duplex. Uh, one of the other key things that's uh, new and unique about the chipset also is that uh, it does have a packet-based fabric. It does not have a packet-attached fabric ASIC to it. It's designed to support a back-to-back -back configuration, but the fabric links themselves are multi-purpose. So they can actually be not only fabric links, they could be turned back around and used as network-facing ports as well in each ASIC individually. So that means that I've got some flexibility here. I can either chain into other ASICs and form a CLO design inside of the box. 
That's exactly right. So right. the back-to-back configuration that we have mm-hmm. allows us to effectively double up capacity that we have, you know, by putting two ASICs on an individual right. system. Or I can face them southbound and turn them in and connect to SFP, you know, front front-facing modules where my optical units are. Absolutely. Right. So you've right. got you've got some flexibility here again to divide up that five tera of capacity uh, in multiple different configurations. And we've got a number of different platforms, again, that do uh, use that capability in different ways. Speeds overall, NFPCX, Gigi, all the way to 400 Gigi, lots of breakout options, merchant power, uh, merchant silicon equivalent power on the order of 0.1 watts per gig uh, with capabilities that far exceed what you get from merchant. And again, yeah. we're talking about a 100% programmable data path with a network processor. We can change anything. So I think what I'm hearing you saying is this chip has this amazing feature, this ISSU update, zero packet loss, but there's not a trade-off here in terms of more performance to have more cores. And I'm not losing performance because that five terabits uh, full duplex capability is on a par with existing custom silicon from other vendors. So that's exactly right. So you get really good performance without being locked into silicon on day one with a set of features that's not going to evolve over time. Uh, it's fully flexible to evolve along with SRV6, you know, standards evolution mm-hmm. or whatever else may come down the road. We'll be able to support that with hardware-based performance with just a microcode update. Very, very different than what you get from the merchant silicon rip and replace. What's the word I'm looking for here? Their philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I guess what I, the thing that I, if I talk about merchant silicon, when we first started talking about it, it wasn't called merchant, it was called commodity silicon. In the way that I think about the 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 merchant silicon or the commodity silicon is, it's a commodity. It's got to be the lowest common denominator to fit the widest possible market, right? And it has to have a price point low enough to be able to attract, you know, that particular thing, right? So when you start talking about custom silicon, you can optimize it for specific purposes. And in some senses, you're leaving aside a market, but there's a new market there. And you're saying here, this is service providers, people who've got very specific high volume forwarding capability to need to forward packets at scale. I want to ask a question, extend on that then is to say, a lot of these modern silicon start to use hierarchical memory structures. So they start talking out to high bandwidth memory or external memory modules to get the size of the routing tables up. Is that something that you support? Absolutely. So we have 192 megs of ingress SRAM available on each ASIC. Uh, and then we've got an eight, we've got two stacks of HBM2 on package for eight gigs of uh, deep buffering. Uh, right. And depending on the system that you look at, we are effectively fully buffered uh, with the system configurations that we're putting in place. Huge service provider focus, like you uh, highlighted mm. there. The guys that designed our QOS are the same guys that design our high end silicon. Uh, in our 7750 series. So a lot of similarities here around uh, quas counters, uh, and really extensibility to uh, a, a lot of really awesome features over time. So, so lots I wanna... of hierarchical queues and queues and queues and priorities within those queues and all that sort of stuff that you'd expect. You didn't take any of that away to get this chip firing up, I think. Absolutely not. Again, yeah. a, a huge focus for us on uh, on making that a big part of our deliverables. Now, regarding the programmability, I understand. Um, so, Nokia, you're saying you can, via this microcode update, add new features uh, to this chip without having to essentially spin up a new ASIC to get new features onto the platform. Uh, is that programmability also extended to the end customer? For right now, the model that it is we're approaching is if a customer does want new features, it would be an engagement back through Nokia in order to make that happen. But again, okay. uh, if you're looking at, again, a standards evolution 
you know, most service providers, mission critical operators, you know, they don't exactly have a ton of software designers just sitting around to go and, you know, adopt new features over time, right? Right. The best economics that they're going to get is really an engagement back to Nokia uh, in order to make that happen in a reasonable amount of time and fully test it out, obviously. Okay. But that but that option, if they do have, you know, some kind of feature that they'd like to get in, they can make that happen with Nokia via software engagement? Uh, of course. Of course, right? That's the, yeah. That for us is just really a simple conversation, you know, as to aligning on what their needs are and what their timelines are. How about security capabilities on this chipset? Well, that's a good segue too, right? So we support something called DDoS mitigation with deterministic large-scale ACLs. So we support something called a signature-based ACL that looks not only in the IP header or the TCP header, but anywhere in the payload. And it allows us to very surgically filter out DDoS attacks, where in conjunction with one of our in-house tools, DeepField, we could actually filter out 100% of all DDoS attacks in band at the edge of a network. So an important thing to highlight here is the roles that is we're looking at, at with FPCX. Mm. And it's really focused around access, aggregation, and some light edge features. But mm. that DDoS mitigation capability, uh, it allows us to be very surgical, right? Normally when you have a system that supports just a five tuple ACL, uh, you get a DDoS attack, you apply your black hole to that particular flow, and you complete the DDoS attack by black holding that traffic. So you're essentially uh, helping this, the DDoS attacker. <laughs> you got it. So with a signature-based ACL where we could look anywhere in the payload, again, you get very surgical filtering capabilities. And again, it allows you to turn the network into part of the solution when it comes to dealing with DDoS. I don't think you're, you're selling this quite well enough, in my opinion, because that's unique. I was just thinking about the HTTP2 reset attack we just went through and, you know, where they were using a particular mode of HTTP2 to try and handle the DDoS. And that means you have to have full application awareness. Now, most DDoS filtering has historically been done by just reaching into the first 64 bytes of the of the IP header, right? Correct. But you have to get right the way down into the HTTP request before you can start to unpack this HTTP2 reset attack, which was the largest to date. Google Cloudflare and, and AWS published together to say this was a lot. But it would be filterable by this because you would be able to fingerprint that. Exactly, right? So terabit level attacks are not very uncommon anymore. Uh, and again, having the ability to- I love the way we just say that and you just say like, that's a standard feature. That's not right special. Is. A terabit attack, yeah, sure, every day. No, it still it blows happen, my right? mind. And yeah. when you can filter that out at the edge without even having to redirect anything towards a scrubbing center, huge, huge savings are possible yeah. there, right? And mm. the, the other part here that comes in hand in hand with, uh, with uh, ACL filtering is that our ACLs are deterministic, which means that as you continue to apply ACLs, your performance is not going to drop. We're designed again to be line rate at full scale ACLs, mm. right? You're not going to see performance degradation with us when it comes to applying ACLs mm. for whatever the use case might be. That's what deterministic right? means. Absolutely. Like you can say that when you add an access list, regardless of how big it is, it's deterministic. It will always perform at the same level. So just because you put in a thousand rules or a hundred thousand rules, it will still have the same performance regardless of the number of entries in the ACL. That's exactly right. That's exactly there are right. limits, of course. You've got to have a certain amount of memory. Each ACL uses up memory according to the size, but still, right? The performance is deterministic. And so that is what you expect to happen. Yes, that is our design specification. That is what we expect mm -hmm. customers to go and test and validate. And we expect to perform to that standard exactly. So there's another part as well to security. Uh, and that's, uh, we support MaxSec on a number of yeah. problems. MaxSec is kind of you know prevalent in a lot of platforms today, but 
we have another key capability called AnySec. And AnySec is our ability to do flow-based encryption. Uh, we have a Mac ASIC that we've reused from our higher-end platforms called the E5. So that E5 Mac ASIC has a series of flexible pointers in it where we can start and stop uh, encryption offsets. So we can leave two VLAN headers in the clear, an IPv4 header in the clear, an IPv6 header in the clear, five MPLS labels in the clear, and then do AES 256-based quantum-safe encryption on the rest of a packet. We could actually start that on the edge of a network. We can finish it on the other end of the network, and everything mm. in the middle of the network would be completely transparent to that end-to-end -end encryption because the encryption becomes now a flow overlay on top of so what this, you have now. All right, so this is per flow. So you're actually saying I can apply MaxSec to this flow, which, you know, say traffic from here to here, but you don't want to encrypt the rest of it because you know, that doesn't need it or there's no purpose or there's some other obligation to not encrypt it. Absolutely. So if you have a particular set of LSPs that you want to go and encrypt for mm. a particular service or a particular set of LSPs you want to encrypt just for internal purposes, oh, that makes sense. Uh, you funny. have that capability to do that, right? This is very granular uh, and it is designed to work at scale as well. I was thinking more about flows like applications, but you're saying you could take by a particular MPLS label switch path, LSP, and you could say this one needs to be encrypted as a customer service. There you go. Absolutely. It, so that, Encrypted that, on the interface. MacSec means it's encrypted. It's not being encrypted in a separate co-process or whatever. It's actually encrypted at in, a, in silicon at line speed. Exactly. So that, that is our long-term vision as to where we're going with AnySec. Uh, it is to be able to do service-based encryption on network-facing ports where you have the ability, to, again, to just turn on or turn off encryption with really just a couple clicks of uh, your automation platform. So we talked a little bit about the silicon. Of course, the silicon has to be packaged up in terms of a box or some hardware. Which hardware platforms should people be looking for if they want to get some of these features? So we have a new set of platforms that have just been announced called the 7730 SXR. SXR stands for the Service Interconnect Router Series. Yeah. We have a set of Broadcom platforms right now called the 7250IXR. And we came up with the SXR name because we wanted to have something that was just a little bit sexier than what we had oh in the market today SXR, compared sexier. to SXR. <laughs> in jokes right there, right? I think the marketing department was very proud of that one. How many of these SXR platforms are there now? Uh, we've got six that are going to start coming available as soon as the middle of the year next year. And then yeah. uh, the rollout of those is going to carry on uh, for uh, probably about a year after that. Okay. Because you mentioned uh, pizza box for pizza box format further up in the show, I might have created the impression that these are only for the pizza box format. Are they also modular? So we've got four pizza boxes, uh, and we've got two modular platforms. Our two modular platforms are Control and Fabric Redundant, and mm. then our pizza box platforms—they're the ones that are in the best position to be able to take advantage of that in-service software mm. upgrade feature with no packet loss. Uh, and again, allow customers to go and look at options to go and uh, reduce power, reduce cost, reduce size when it comes mm. to dealing with high availability or uh, big SLA uh, dependent requirements. Well, that does wrap up the time we have. Uh, Jeff, if folks want to find out more about this new silicon or about the new platforms it's going to be in, what should they do? Uh, the best place to go to is just go to Nokia.com and just do a quick search up there for the 7730SXR or for the FPCX chipset. 
All right, that's the FPCX chipset or the 7730SXR platforms. Uh, we'll also have a ton of links in the show notes that accompany this podcast with more details about the silicon, about this uh, routing platforms, uh, and even more details. So come and check that out if you want to get more details. Uh, thank you, Jeff, for joining us. And thanks to Nokia for being a longtime sponsor of the Packet Pushers. And as always, thank you for listening. Packet Pushers has a network of nerdy technical podcasts on networking, wireless cloud, Kubernetes, and more. And you can hear every episode at packetpushers.net. Uh, you can also find us on LinkedIn, hear us on Spotify, and if you would, leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.